objections uh, of Habakkuk this morning. So we'll get the slide up there, and then we'll, okay, it's just not, there it is, okay. Uh, by the way, we are, uh, Brother Steve, we, we experimented with another projector at the back, and it was advertised to be 6,500 lumens, which this one's 4,500, so it should have been very bright. I discovered that uh, the advertiser made a mistake, and it should have been 650 lumens because we couldn't see anything. But new projectors back there, we'll have it up next Sunday, and so uh, we'll probably get it up either today or, or Wednesday night, and then next Sunday you should be able to see just fine. It'll be the, it's the same brightness as this one, so we'll, we'll be good to go. Uh, so Habakkuk is a book about uh, difficult questions uh, that Habakkuk uh, is being asked by the people and he in turn asks them of God and then there are some divine answers. But quite frankly, a lot of God's ways don't make sense to us because just as high as the heaven is from the earth, so far are our thoughts from God's thoughts. And so we have a hard time wrapping our brain around the things uh, that he does. Now, you'll remember last time I said this was a book with a lot of unknowns. We have an unknown prophet. Uh, Habakkuk is not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. We don't know uh, what city he was from. We don't know anything about his background. We don't uh, uh, know anything about uh, what time he's written, although we have an, an educated guest that I'll share with you in a moment. Uh, we don't know exactly to whom he's writing. Uh, so we don't have a lot of information about him. Now, it is interesting that even though he's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, uh, he's mentioned in one book of the Apocrypha. Now, I want to be very clear. The Apocrypha is not inspired Scripture. Okay, It's uh, uh, apocryphal, which means they're made-up stories. They're books that were denied their existence in the scriptural canon because they had some errors in it or things that were against Scripture or things that could not be substantiated. And, of course, if you're in the Roman Catholic Church or the Greek Orthodox Church, they'll refer to this as the Deuterocanon or the second canon, which somehow or other gives them more legitimacy if we create a name like that. But let's be clear, it's, the, it's not the inspired word. And the people who compiled the Apocrypha said, this is not for study. It's, not for, uh, it's for illustrative purposes, and they're interesting stories that we preserve, but don't use this for the basis of your spiritual life. But there is a story in the Apocrypha where when Daniel's in the lion's den, an angel transports Habakkuk to the lion's den uh, to feed Daniel some stew. Now, personally, if I'm Daniel and somebody brought me some stew, I'd make sure the lions ate before I did. Uh, so, you know, that's probably not, not a great idea. But anyway, it's kind of interesting that there is, that's the only extra biblical reference to him. Now, this time frame for this book could have happened anywhere between 701 and 330 B.C. And a lot of it hinges uh, on the word that is translated as Chaldeans, the Kasdim. And uh, depending, uh, some, some manuscripts, uh, they refer as Kasdim, others Katim, and it's just a small difference. This is why Jesus said every jot or tittle is important. Uh, and if it's the Katim, that would be the Greeks, that would be around 330 B.C. If it's the Kasdim, the, Chal- the Chaldeans, it's more in that area of 701 B.C. Most scholars, and I think this is probably the best view, as I'll show you on a, a subsequent slide, believe that Habakkuk wrote somewhere during the reign of Jehoiakim, which he reigned from 609 to 597 B.C., uh, during the rise of the Chaldeans and the Assyrians as a threat to Judah. And so probably this is a good timeline for us to look at. You'll see there on the, uh, the far left, you have Saragon II of Assyria conquers Israel in 722 B.C. That's when the Israeli captivity begins. Of course, this, this is the period of the divided kingdom. And then uh, Sennacherib of Assyria surrounds Jerusalem. We read about that in Second Chronicles 32. There's an account of that. And 185,000 were killed in one night by an angel of the Lord. And then Manasseh becomes king of Judah, arguably one of the most wicked kings of all the kings of, uh, of Judah. And then we have Jeremiah that begins his prophetic ministry around 627. And then the Assyrian capital of Nineveh is sacked. And then we think maybe Habakkuk begins his ministry around 607 B.C. And again, we don't have dates, but what we're basing this on is some references to different uh, things that are going on uh, in, in the book of Habakkuk by some of the references to what we can determine about the ministry. And of course, Ezekiel began, uh, well, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, 
uh, is victorious at Carchemish, and then Ezekiel begins his ministry, and ultimately in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar carries away captives from Judah uh, into Babylon. So this is somewhere between, we think, the Israeli captivity and the captivity of the children of Judah. Uh, and it looks to me like it's probably pretty good to say around 607, 609 uh, B.C., somewhere in there. Now, you remember last week we had Habakkuk's first question. And the question was, why do I have to look at all this evil corruption around me? God, why aren't you doing something about it? And we remember that God's answer was, oh, well, I, I have a plan. I am bringing chastisement to Judah for all the evil, and I'm going to use the wicked and godless Chaldeans to do that. Well, that was not the answer, obviously, that Habakkuk expected. And uh, these Chaldeans, we know, are the Chaldeans were near relatives of Abraham. You remember that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, okay? Uh, and they intermarried with people around Babylon. And by the time Nebuchadnezzar becomes king and establishes a dynasty, the term Chaldeans became synonymous with the term Babylonians. They meant the same thing. Now... What's interesting to me is how relevant Habakkuk is. Because can we look around us and see corruption in our society today? Well, obviously. In fact, is there was a lot just in the news in this last week. And uh, so I'm not, I don't have to even go back to the election and what I think of what I think is obvious fraud there. But let's just go back to this week's news. A couple of interesting things happened. I don't know how many of you heard about GameStop uh, or AMC theaters in the news this last week. But a major financial news and, and a major corruption. So it kind of works like this. Uh, GameStop is a video games retailer and they've been hard hit by the pandemic. People don't want to walk into stores to shop for video games. And so what they do, some of them are visiting GameStop's online store and downloading video games and then play multiplayer games. And I have to be quite honest with you, I think the last time I played a game on my computer, I played a game with my oldest son, probably... Uh, well, it was long before he was married, so I'm going to have to say it was probably 15 years ago. I don't have time for games. <laughs> I've got too many other things to do. Uh, and, but I do know a lot of people enjoy doing that sort of thing. Uh, so they were struggling. Well, there was a hedge fund, uh, Melvin Capital, also known as Citadel. Citadel is actually an investment firm in Melvin Capital. And they decided to short the stock. Now, you probably never shorted a stock. What that means is they go in, they make a special kind of trade where they're betting a stock will go down. So what they do is they borrow. They don't buy a stock. They borrow a stock. So if I owned a stock, you could borrow the stock from me. You could uh, sell it if you thought the stock was going down. You capture today's price for it. And then when the stock goes down because you believe the company is doing poorly, you buy the stock back at a cheaper price, and then you give the stock back to the original purchase or person that owned it. So what you're doing is you're making money between the current price and the new price that's down here, and you're making money off of a company's losing stock. Perfectly legal. You can do this yourself if you have an investment account. But the problem is, is that if I short a stock, or if Brother Dennis were to short a stock, let's say that somehow or other somebody showed up with a big suitcase of money and we could buy as much stock as we wanted, we would be limited as individuals to only being able to short the number of shares that we were able to borrow, which means that you can only short the number of shares that actually exist out in the world. If a company only has 1,000 shares of stock, you can only short 1,000 shares. Well, GameStop had 69.5 million shares, and Melvin Capital decides to short 140% of the shares. Now, that should be illegal because, remember, they have to borrow those shares, which you can't borrow what doesn't exist. How can you borrow 140% of the shares that exist? That's wrong. But they borrowed 140% of 69.5 million shares so that when the price goes down, they could then buy all that stock back at a much cheaper price, and then they profit the difference, and that's really kind of a swindle because the stock... 40% of that doesn't exist. So they had a problem. Uh, this behavior is evidently not illegal for hedge funds, but it should be. Uh, it shouldn't be that the rich and powerful get away with doing stuff that's just not even feasible. Well, so GameStop 
put some numbers to it to help you understand how big a deal this was. GameStop cost $18.84 a share on December 31st. And that's when this whole process began of shorting the stock. So Melvin Capital borrowed the shares that price and sold them. Actually, they borrowed 140% of the shares that existed. I don't know how they did that. And they shorted them, and so the price began plummeting. The one thing that Citadel and Melvin Capital didn't count on was social media. So there is a platform that I've only looked at once or twice. You know, I've, I don't even look at Facebook most days anymore. It's just too discouraging for me. I look once in a while to see pictures of my grandkids, but I don't post there often. I certainly don't read it. I don't have time for it. Uh, there are people that spend a lot of time on Facebook, and they have time, and they read everything every friend said. I just feel like it's kind of a waste of my breath and of my life, so I don't do that very often. And, of course, there's Twitter, and the only time I use Facebook and Twitter, quite frankly, is to post links to the sermons that we put online or Brother Steve's Sunday School lessons we put online, and that way people get notified of them. Well, uh, the price started plummeting, but there is a social forum called Reddit. And a bunch of them, if you go out to Reddit, they have different boards or different groups for just about anything you can think of, whether it's the movies or DC Comics or investing is one of them, or parenting or marriage or, or how to get out of debt or, you know, ransom Dave Ramsey, you name it, it's out there. And a bunch of people in one of the investing forums said, I think that a capital company is trying to take out GameStop, and I think that they're trying to force the stock down. And then they made the suggestion, let's all go buy GameStop while it's cheap. So what happened is this stock was at $18.84. It starts plummeting all the way down to about $2.57, which was the exact thing that Melvin Capital wanted. But then all of a sudden all these Reddit people started buying the stock, and overnight the stock went to $350 a share which means that Melvin Capital now has a huge, hairy problem because they have borrowed stock at $18.84. They were intending to make a profit when it got down to $257, but now it costs $350 a share. So let's, uh, let's put a little bit more uh, uh, numbers to that. So if you've been able to have 1,000 shares of GameStop this last week, at $18.48 a share when Melvin Capital was selling their borrowed shares, you would have made an investment of $18,480, and the next morning it would have been worth $350,000. And there were some people that did that. There were some people that got in just in the nick of time, right timing, that made over $300,000 on 1,000 shares or more overnight. Uh, that means that if you had had 1,000 shares, Melvin Capital would have lost $331,000 giving you your money. And that, but bear in mind, we're not talking 1,000 shares. We're talking about 69,750,000 shares times 1.4. So if they'd only shorted the stock that existed, they would have lost $23.123 trillion. You thought our national debt was a big number. Melvin Capital was about to have a much bigger number than our national debt. Then they had shorted 140% of the shares, which means they were going to lose over $32 trillion. Well, you can't lose over $32 trillion because they don't have that much money. So what would have happened? This hedge fund would have gone bankrupt, and uh, their executives would have been in jail. And it might have started a new financial crisis because uh, uh, Melvin uh, Melvin Capital and Citadel that's behind them and others would have had relationships with others and it could have triggered a whole series of financial crises. Now, quite frankly, I think if people want to do stuff that's unethical and illegal, that they should suffer the consequences of it. I would rather see these firms fail because what they were doing was wrong. They were doing something we're not allowed to do. They were doing something that's illegal for us to do, and yet because they're privileged and because they have a corrupt government in their pocket, they got away with this. Well, the problem is, what are you going to do to stop losing $32 trillion? Well, the only thing you can do is shut trading down. So 
For example, Robin Hood was the first. Now, Robin Hood's been in the news a lot lately in the last couple of years. They are a trading platform. There's an app for your phone. You can use a phone app. Most yuppies, uh, which I'm not really yuppie, but most young urban professionals or most uh, millennials, I think that's what they're calling them now, they do all their trading and all their finances on, on the phone. They don't use a desktop computer like I do, and they don't look at charts and whatnot. They just look at this little thing on their phone. They make trades. And uh, so Robinhood has commission-free trading. They don't pay uh, commission when they trade up to a certain number of shares. And so it's a popular platform. And so Robinhood instantly seeing all these trades and the huge trade volume, they basically, I think, got a call from Citadel Financial, who is behind Melvin Capital. And Citadel had invested about $39 million in Robinhood. And somebody got the word, you need to shut down trading on GameStop and don't allow any more shares to be traded. So maybe you had bought some of these cheap shares. You should have made a lot of money when you sold them the next morning. And next morning you got up and you had shares that you owned but you couldn't sell. The reason you couldn't sell them is because Robinhood stopped all trading on them. So there were people who should be getting big checks in the mail that aren't getting squat because Robinhood shut down trading. Of course, when Robinhood did, TD Ameritrade did, and several other brokerage firms did as well. So they all kind of followed suit. So what should have happened? They should have gone out of business. They should have been declared bankrupt. Their leaders should be in jail for doing unethical and things. And the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States should have put a stop to this kind of thing. Well, that Secretary of the Treasury is a lady by the name of Janet Yellen, who used to be the Fed chairman, and she's now the Secretary of Treasury under Biden's administration. And hedge funds should not be able to short more stock than exists in the marketplace. Um, so there should have been consequences of that action. Now, why didn't Janet Yellen get involved? She was supposedly advising the president. Well, interestingly enough, Citadel, the fund that was going to lose the $32 trillion and would have gone bankrupt, obviously, um, along with another company called Point72 Asset Management, uh, had paid last year Janet Yellen $810,000 in speaking fees. Now, I have heard Janet Yellen speak. She is not worth $810,000, I'll just tell you right now. Uh, and, and Brother Steve, I think you and I need to ask for a raise. Uh, but uh, that she was corrupt so much though that she let all this happen and she basically told the president we just need to keep our hands off of it and yes it's wrong yes it's corrupt but let's just let it go and because if somebody's going to pay you eight hundred and ten thousand dollars when you're not a good public speaker to do public speaking you want to stay on their good side and so that was happening in fact last the secretary uh, Yellen has been paid seven million dollars in speaking fees from financial firms over the last two years. And that raises the question of how objective is she going to be as Secretary of the Treasury when she's dealing with financial issues. This is just about as corrupt as, as it gets. Now, if that wasn't enough, there's AMC movie theaters. And I'm, I'll save you all the details and all the time, but tell you it's exactly the same thing happened to AMC that happened to GameStop. Numbers weren't quite as big. This time the hedge funds, it was other hedge funds too, they shorted 123% of the stock as, instead of 140%. But again, they would have lost trillions. So guess what else shut down? All the trading companies quit trading uh, uh, AMC stock, even though it went up over 300% overnight, which 300% is chicken feed compared to what GameStop did. But uh, it, it went up over 300% overnight. So if you had been lucky enough to get on an AMC movie theater trade when it was being shorted and you could have sold it the first thing the next morning before they shut down trading, you would have made a boatload of money. And I'm talking about a big boat. Uh, but it was stopped and once again, uh, the Secretary of the Treasury, the President are silent on this. There's no consequences because guess what? It's the big banks, it's Wall Street that they really control everything. The old saying is follow the money. You want to see why there's corruption? Follow the money. Figure out who's making the money off of this. Uh, none of this would, should have been legal. So this is, this is corruption. Now, if it wasn't enough that we just have financial corruption, uh, just the other news this week was so discouraging to me. There's a move now underway to uh, decide D.C. and Puerto Rico will be states, and if so, that'll be four more Democrat senators uh, throwing off the balance in the Senate even further. 
there is now uh, legislation underway to try to increase the number of Supreme Court justices to somewhere between 12 to as many as 24, depending on whose legislation uh, is going to be followed, which, of course, that would mean Biden would get to appoint all those and the Democratic Congress would get to approve all those and we'd have liberal judges in our nation for the next 60 to 70 years. Those are lifetime appointments. Uh, more efforts to open borders and not uh, hold, uh, have amnesty for anybody that's here illegally, and basically to decimate the oil and gas industry. And I, I got to tell you, I'm proud of our, our, our Texas governor. Of course, I really am a huge fan of our lieutenant governor. He's a good Christian man, but uh, our, our uh, governor has told all the state agencies that have anything to do with oil and gas to sue the current presidential administration over their actions. They're putting lots of people out of work. I mean, it was only 11,000 people the first day when he withdrew the building certificate or permit for the, the pipeline coming from Canada. We're all going to be paying higher gas prices shortly because of that. Uh, but uh, I appreciate the fact that our, our governor is trying to sue. And then if you didn't think that was enough, for those of you who actually care about your uh, Second Amendment rights to be able to have a firearm, there's a new bill, House Bill 127. Basically, what that means is for every gun you have, you have to turn in information to the federal government about where you bought it, how much you paid for it, where it is now, and if you've ever loaned it to anyone. You have to, that's information they're all requesting. Then you're going to have to buy a license. It's $800 per year for the license just to be able to keep the firearms you already own and to buy any bullets or ammo for it, you have to have this license. If you don't renew the license, the federal government will come and confiscate all your firearms and ammo because you didn't renew your license on time. And in order to renew the license, you have to take eight hours of continuing education uh, that year. And also, anything that holds more than 10 rounds of ammunition requires a more special license. It's probably about a couple of thousand dollars a year. So if you have an AK-47, AR-15, anything holds more than 10 rounds, you're, you're going to have to have an, a special license that also would lead to gun confiscation. So this is by far the, the greatest reach that the government has ever tried to make uh, to get the firearms out of the hands of citizens. So if I owned a firearm, I would be very worried about this. And I think any of you that own them, you should be worried about this and pray that there's enough uh, uh, opposition in the, the House of Representatives that it never sees the light of day. But this is a, an extreme liberal agenda, and there's extreme corruption, and big firms are controlling everything, and they're basically trying to decimate the rights to protect ourselves. They're trying to decimate the rights of free speech. They're trying to decimate our rights to worship, and all that's in the works. It's the most corrupt that I've seen our government in my lifetime. Now, Habakkuk is a relevant book because Habakkuk is looking around him and Habakkuk is saying to himself, what I see going on in Judah should not be happening. This is the most corrupt ever. And he's just got through asking God, why aren't you doing anything? And then God says, I am. There's an enemy coming and he's going to basically almost totally wipe the floor with you. That's bad news. But it's not unlike the news that some of us felt like we had to find out that what I think personally is rampant fraud, that the election was stolen. And because of that, now we are seeing our, that no one has any consequences and we're seeing uh, corruption at a whole new level. So let's read these, these words. And I'm going to ask you if you would for just a moment if you'd stand just in honor of God's word. If you're not able to, that's fine. But just in honor of God's word. I'm reading for the Lexham English Bible, so you can follow along on the screen if you like. Habakkuk 1, beginning at verse 12. Are you not from old, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. O Yahweh, you have marked for them judgment. O rock, you have established them for reproof. Your eyes are too pure to see evil, and you are not able to look at wrongdoing. Why do you look at the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallows up someone more righteous than him? You make humankind like fish of the sea, like crawling creatures that have no ruler among them. He brings up all of them with a fish hook. He drags them up with his fish net and he gathers them in his dragnet. Therefore, he rejoices and exults. Therefore, he sacrifices to his fish net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he makes a good living and his food is rich. 
Will the, he therefore empty his fishnet and continually kill nations without showing mercy? I will stand at my post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then Yahweh answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on the tablet so that it might be read quickly. For there is yet a vision for the appointed time. It will give witness to the end, and it will not lie. If it tarries, wait for it, for it will surely come and not delay. Look, his spirit within him is puffed up. It is not upright. But the righteous shall live by his faithfulness. King James would say, the just shall live by faith. You should all know that verse. How much less the defiant, the arrogant, treacherous man. He who broadens his throat like Sheol, (coughs) and who like death is not satisfied, and who gathers to himself all the nations, and harvested for himself all the peoples, will not succeed. Let's pray. Lord, like Habakkuk, we seem surrounded by evil and corruption that continues to grow in magnitude and frequency at an alarmingly and unbelievable rate. Father, would you help us, like Habakkuk, to know that in the midst of every circumstance, no matter how overwhelming, that you are worthy of our praise. Open our hearts to the truth of your word, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thank you. You may be seated. So, I am very impressed with Habakkuk here. Now, I like the fact that when we read about Bible characters, that the Bible doesn't spit polish them and take away all their flaws, but instead it shows us the good, bad, and the ugly about these characters. Uh, Habakkuk was being asked some tough questions by the people of Judah who were, like many of us, standing around and looking at the corruption in society and we're talking amongst ourselves and we finally go ask the preacher, why isn't God doing something about this mess? And so he relayed that question, he got an answer back, but now God's first answer stimulates another whole question. But before he asks this other question... (coughs) He expresses some confidence in God. And I I really think this is a cool thing to do. He says, oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? So the first thing he does is, this isn't really a question. This is what we call a rhetorical question. It's really a declaration or a statement more so than it is an interrogative or a question. Uh, Basically, he's saying, God, I have confidence in the fact that you are the living and eternal God, Yahweh, And by the way, that contrasts very strongly with the previous verse that uh, we ended last sermon with where it said the Babylonians had made their own strength their God. They worshipped their military ability. They worshipped their strength. They would celebrate when they had conquered somebody at how powerful and great they were. This is a really must be a big Babylonian thing because you remember Nebuchadnezzar Uh, One of the most famous Babylonians of all time went out one day and looked at all his accomplishments and he says, isn't this great Babylon which I have built? And the next thing he knows, he's eating grass for seven years. Uh, So, but they made their own strength, that kind of thing. So Habakkuk refused to believe even after God told him, hey, the Chaldeans or the Babylonians are coming and they're going (coughs) to... They're going to be overwhelming. They're going to basically, they're going to come through and it's, it's almost going to be like they, they bring such destruction as it will wipe the slate with you and there won't be people left. But Habakkuk refuses to believe that God is totally done with Judah or that he's totally done with Israel. He, he believes that God can't let that happen for two very important reasons. Number one is that God is immutable. That means unchangeable. He's the immutable and everlasting Lord who does not break his covenant with Israel. God doesn't break his covenant. Now, I am I'm amazed how easily people break their covenants. I remember the uh, first full-time church that I pastored in East Texas. Judy uh, and I had not been married that many years, and there was a couple uh, in our church one night that I had to go over about 2 in the morning because the wife was packing up to leave, and uh, the couple had teenage kids, and they had been married uh, over, it was, I want to say 14 years, but it must have been a little longer than that, but it was less than 20, more than 14. And I remember thinking at the time, how does anybody be married that long and then just decide to end it? 
But now you hear about people that, you know, 14 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, and they're leaving their spouse. How in the world does that happen? Uh, I certainly can't imagine after being married 40 years that that would happen, but the reality is people are sinners, and sinners do stupid stuff, and when we do stupid, we reap desperate, okay? And so, but one thing is, is if God gives you his word, you can bank on it. It's not ever going to be void. And so he has a confidence that the immutable, unchangeable, everlasting God would keep his covenant. That's a pretty good conclusion on Habakkuk's part. The second thing that kept him from believing that Judah would be totally wiped out by the Babylonians, which they weren't, God left a remnant, is that the holy and righteous God who would not let sin go unpunished in Judah would also not let the sin of their enemies go unpunished either. He said, I, I know that even though Babylonians are going to do this, I, I'm pretty sure God's not going to let them get away with it. They're going to suffer too. You know, it may be that uh, the present system of government is going to make life very difficult for us as Christians and law-abiding citizens for the next four years. And it may be that in four years from now, the only people that have guns are the criminals and the bodyguards of the elite. But you know what? Uh, their judgment day is coming. God will assure them of that. And so Habakkuk rightly concludes, he says, My God, my Holy One, we will not die. Now, did people in Judah die when Nebuchadnezzar came in and carried away the captives into Babylon? Yes, people died in that war. He's not saying nobody would die. He's just saying we're not going to cease to exist. Judah will still be around. God's descendants of David will still be around. Those things are not going to go away, but he expresses confidence in God. And he, he, he refers elsewhere in Habakkuk to this idea of the eternal and holy God. Chapter 3, verse 6, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. Then the mountains of old were shattered. The hills of old collapsed. The ways of old belonged to him. In other words, he was the creator. He's been around since eternity past. He's eternal. Chapter 3 and verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and His praise fills the earth. He's eternal and He's holy and He's worthy of our worship. Something else I think Habakkuk remembers here is what is the real purpose of the enemy? Why are the Chaldeans coming? Why are the Babylonians coming? They're coming to chastise or discipline or punish, if you want to use that word. I prefer chastise and discipline. But they came to chastise and discipline the nation of Judah. They did not come to demolish them. Now, have you ever had a problem come and you realize that the problem kind of came into your life because of your own stupid or because of your own compromise, because of your own sin, and God is giving you a whooping because he loves you? Now, it's been a long time since I had to whoop a kid or a grandkid, but I have done it in the past and uh, it was because I loved them. I didn't want them to grow up to be ungodly. I didn't want them to grow up to be disrespectful. I disciplined because I love them, and my Heavenly Father does the same thing for me. He disciplines me because He loves me. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, please do not make the mistake that many charismatic Christians do. If they see someone sick or they see someone having a problem, they instantly assume, oh, they must be sinners. I had a lady in my church one time, Miss Virginia, sweet, beautiful Christian lady, and I've told some of you this story before, but uh, uh, it was a little church out outside of Nacogdoches, Texas. We were so far outside of Nacogdoches that the road only went out to the church twice a week, and that's a long way. And we had to pay a sunshine import tax just to get out that far in the country. Uh, but we were, we were out there, and I'm in my office one day, and I'm trying to uh, rearrange some things. Uh, no, actually, I was trying to use the table in the foyer to put a projector on. And this is, we're talking overhead projector. We didn't have this kind back then. So I was trying to get an overhead projector and use it, and I'm testing it. So I got the, the table out of the foyer. I set it up in the auditorium to see if the overhead projector would be viewable by people before Sunday came. And to do that, I had to take a flower arrangement off that table, kind of like this, and I went and put it on the desk in my office to get it out of the way. Well, Sunday came and went, but Miss Virginia cleaned the church. And what I noticed after that, there was a fresh flower arrangement on the table in my office each week because I just put it in there to get it out of the way. She thought I liked flowers. This is how sweet this lady is. Wonderful, godly woman, but then she got ovarian cancer. And there was uh, 
a woman in my church, one of the deacon's wives, that she spent, she had listened so long to the previous pastor only teaching salvation, never taught anything else, that she went looking for teaching and she found it in the wrong places. And so she started following Jimmy Swaggart and Jim Baker and Kenneth Copeland and a bunch of others. Some of these guys are still around today. And she told Miss Virginia that if she would repent of her sins, that ovarian cancer would go away. Now, you know, when I heard it, I was livid. Um, not proud of that, but I was. We need to understand we live in a sinful world, and sin has affected all of our bodies, like it or not. And the whole world is running down, and our bodies run down as we get older, and sometimes cancer happens, and it's not a direct result of sin in our lives, of, of individual specific sin in our lives. And we certainly can't go around telling people, oh, you get rid of that cancer if you just repent. That's not biblical. It shows you lack understanding. Jesus one time was asked by his disciples, why is this man blind? Was it for his sin or for the sin of his parents? And Jesus said, it's for neither, but that God might be glorified. There's different purposes in sin. Sometimes God does chastise people. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us that the people in Corinth, many of them were sick and some had even died because they did not take the Lord's Supper seriously. And then... Uh, there's sometimes God uses sickness to take his children home and bless it in the sight of the Lord as the death of a saint. And then sometimes sin just happens so that we have an opportunity in our sickness to glorify God and God gets the praise. And that might be getting healed. Might not. Maybe you just glorify God while you're going through it. We, we, we shouldn't think that we understand everything and start telling people, oh, you just need to confess your sin and that sickness will go away. It's not the reason for everything. But Habakkuk understands that this time, the judgment is coming on Judah to punish or chastise or correct them, but it's not to utterly destroy them. And in the midst of this time of uncertainty, I think the name he gives God is rather interesting here. He says, the rock. You're the rock. Not uh, Dwayne, what's his name? You know, the big wrestler guy that's in all the movies. And he's the highest paid actor in Hollywood right now. Dwayne, I can't think of his last name. My, my children will think I'm stupid for not knowing that. Somebody say it? Johnson. Dwayne Johnson, okay. So, I mean, the rock, pretty impressive guy. Uh, in terms of his physique, obviously, uh, his diet is pretty amazing, too. He eats like 24 chicken breasts every day. Uh, it's amazing to keep that kind of protein level up for a long time. But the real rock, the one whose muscles will never get smaller, uh, the one who's never going to be flawed in his character, the one who always remains holy is, is, is God. It's the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy actually is the first time to use this term for God. Deuteronomy 32, 4. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are just. He is a faithful God and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. It's the first time God is called the rock in scripture. So let's look at Habakkuk's question this time. What does he ask God? He basically says, why would you, a holy God, use a wicked people to administer discipline on Judah when Judah is not nearly as evil as the people you're going to use, the Chaldeans or Babylonians? He says, your eyes are too pure to see evil and you're not able to look at wrongdoing, so why do you look at the treacherous? Why are you silent when the wicked swallows up someone more righteous than him? In other words, God, how can you use these incredibly wicked Babylonians to deal with Judah when they're, yes, they're politically corrupt and they got bad stuff, and, but, but, but Babylon is so much worse. How in the world can you do that? How can you use some so, so wicked? Because he understands that God's too pure to look at evil and God can't tolerate wrong, so how can he use these wicked people? It'd be like us asking today, God, how could you use people that corrupt an election, were able to steal it, have no consequences, now you're allowing us to be oppressed by them? That might be the question many of us are asking today. He might even say, it's just not fair. In verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, we looked at last week, Habakkuk can't understand why God seems to not be concerned about all the sin going on around him. But now that he's heard that the wicked Chaldeans are come to wreak havoc in Judah, he, he looks at the righteous and holy God and asks, why will you tolerate such treachery? His focus kind of shifts from the problem of sin to the sovereign God. 
and his complaint that the sovereign God's not making sense. He's confusing us with his answers. Because it seems to Habakkuk there's a perversion of justice for a holy God to use a sinful nation to punish his own people. Because quite frankly, what the Babylonians did dwarfed anything that the people of Judah had done. Their atrocities, their wickedness, their savagery dwarfed any sin that Judah had committed. By the way, let me tell you something. I think we get a wrong idea of sin. We think some sins are worse than others, but I think with, with God, anything that's not holy is sin. And they, all sins pretty much fall on, on the same level. So Habakkuk was essentially asking, why isn't God fair? Now, something I try to teach my kids growing up is there's a difference between justice and fairness. Justice is what God says is right, and he is the judge of all creation. He is the creator. He's the redeemer. He can do what he wants, and anything he does is just because he himself is right and just. But fair is what we think is right or what we think is equitable. And when Sally sees Susie getting a bigger ice cream cone than she got, Sally says, that's not fair. It's our nature to think anything that doesn't treat us well is not fair. And this is basically what Habakkuk is saying. It's not fair because they deserve judgment even more than Judah does. And yet you're going to use them to judge us? Yeah, God's not fair. He's just. So basically Habakkuk is saying, God, you confuse me. You don't make sense to me. Help me understand this. And then he goes up and says, listen, Judah is defenseless before Babylon. Listen to how defenseless they are. He says, you make humankind like fish of the sea, like crawling creatures that have no ruler among them. I I remember, uh, I think it was two years ago, we don't always swim with sharks, Brother Steve, uh, but a couple years ago we went snorkeling in a lagoon. I didn't think I'd see that much, and uh, literally the very second we put our face down the water, we were in the middle of a school of about a million or two million sardines. Now that's a weird look. They're, they're very small fish, but they all, they all swim together. Now there's, as far as I know, no communication that goes on. There's not a leader that says, follow me. But, but they all swim together. And the minute you get close to the sardines, it's, when you're underwater, it looks like the silver river running under the water that shifts direction. And they, they undulate and they move around. And it, was, it was amazing, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. And I would love to go back to that same lagoon and hope that they were there again. Sometimes dolphins will get all the sardines pulled in a lagoon and then they'll come in and feast on them. But it was, it was positively amazing to see that they had no ruler, but they went around and it would have been a quite easy thing to take a net. Like I used to use in Kansas on the rivers, we used to do something called seining. And seining is where you have a fine net. It's got weights around the outside and you get out where you think there's some some uh, minnows or something, and you throw this net out, and the weights cause the outside to sink faster, and then you pull a rope that's tied to the center of the net, and the net closes, and you come up, and you've got all kinds of minnows in your net. And that's what you go catch the catfish with and the bass with and other things. You didn't pay for bait. You caught your bait. Well, basically saying that Judah is like this large school of fish that have no leader, and they're helpless prey for Babylon to just throw a net out and decimate the population. And he, and he says, and, and not only do they fish with nets, they fish with fish hooks too. Uh, King James, uh, I think the, the word is angle, but it, it's talking about a fish hook. He brings them up all with a fish hook. He drags them up with his fish net. He gathers them in his drag net. So a lot of different ways to catch fish. You can have... You can have a hook, you can have a small net, or you can get one of these giant nets that you pull behind a boat and sweep in a huge catch and maybe even get reality TV to fund a series about you. Uh, But the wicked Babylonians here are like the men catching the fish with hooks and nets and they gather their enemies in it. And everywhere Babylon went, quite frankly, that's what they did. They wiped out whoever was there and then they just rejoiced over their ability to catch so many fish. So Habakkuk says, why would God not only excuse a a, a terrible people, but people of idolatry? Look what he says. Therefore he sacrifices to his fishnet. He makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he makes a good living and his food is rich. Will he therefore empty his fishnet and continually kill nations without showing mercy? Habakkuk's using a metaphor here saying basically they worship their fishnets because they catch stuff in it. 
We learned last time Habakkuk's, uh, God said of the Babylonians that they worshiped their own might and strength to be able to fight battle. That's who they glorified. They glorified themselves. And this is really a form of idolatry. See, idolatry is not limited to people who bring sacrifices uh, and burn incense and things of that nature. And uh, if I'd had time, I'd have taken some pictures from my very first trip to Taiwan from years ago and just watching the people burn incense to a god. And, you know, one of the most fascinating things to me is they had these little blocks that were curved on one side. The blocks were in the shape of a kidney bean, but they were curved on one side, flat on the other, and they would, they would pray about God, you know, whatever God happened to be. Maybe it was Guangdong, the god of business, or maybe it was uh, Kenmu, the heavenly mother, or something like that. They would pray about this. They'd go over and they would pick uh, a piece of paper with a number on it. Or actually, they, they got some sticks. There's these big sticks and, and what, these red trash cans. They shake all the sticks up. They'd close their eyes. They'd reach in and pull out a stick, and the stick had a number on it. And then they'd go pray to ask their God, is this the stick you have for me? Maybe it's stick number 37, okay? Of course, the characters were written in Chinese, not Arabic numerals. But it's kind of like, God, is stick number 37 your will for my life? And they would pray, and then they would bow several times, and they would cast down two of these kidney bean blocks of wood. And if one of them was up, curved side up, and the other is curved side down, that was a yes. If they were both flat side down, that was no. If they were both curved side down, their God is saying maybe. And then if they get a yes, they would say, ah, stick number 37 is my God's will for my life. They'd go over this thing that looked like an old-fashioned post office with all the little cubby holes for things. They'd go into box number 37 and they'd pull out a piece of paper that had a fortune written on them that was their God's will for their life. And that's how they determined things. So they would be very religious. They'd burn incense. They would offer up food to the gods and often food to their ancestors. Uh, I watched a lady one day from our uh, apartment, which was, I think, on the fourth floor, as I remember, fourth or fifth floor. I, I watched a lady come out across the way, and she had just prepared a duck uh, for her family to eat. But before her family could eat the roast duck, she brought out a duck and six beers and, and asked the ancestors to come down and eat the spiritual part of the food because she's feeding granny and grandpa and great granny and great grandpa. And so basically she let them have the spiritual part of the duck and I guess the, if you'll pardon the pun, the spiritual part of the spirits uh, because there were all the, that beer there too. So they would come down and consume it and then they take it back in. And, and, and it's, it's so unreal, but you know we think of that kind of thing as idolatry but people that have position or power or prosperity often pay homage to the institutions or the organizations that help them get that coveted status. So this week when we had all this financial corruption and, and the stock market and basically it's these rich, powerful people that have control over the trading organizations and they should have lost $32 trillion. It should have precipitated a financial crisis. It should have wiped every unethical financial firm out of business overnight and it should have forced us to rebuild an economy that's based on real value and not speculation. None of that happened. And I can guarantee you they patted themselves on the back for making a $32 trillion bet, losing it, and nothing happens to them. I can guarantee you that uh, they'll send Janet Yellen a Christmas card. I can guarantee you that they're proud of themselves. Paul made the point that people were doing those things of which they ought to be ashamed, but they take glory in them instead. So how does God answer Habakkuk's question. Well, first thing he says, you need to take dictation. Get out your pens. Get out your paper. Time to write. Except this time it wasn't paper. It wasn't papyrus. He says, you need to engrave this on a clay tablet. Look what he says. Yahweh answered me and said, write the vision. Make it plain on the what? The tablet so that it might be read quickly. He says, I want this in a tablet. This is going to last a long time. People need to be able to read this in the future. People need to be able to share this in the future. Messengers need to, or heralds, need to be able to carry copies of these tablets to other parts of the kingdom and have this answer read to them. And God says, I'm going to answer your question, Habakkuk, but I'm not doing so for your personal curiosity. You need to share this truth. The Bible, by the way, is not meant to be there just for our personal curiosity it's meant for us to share its truth with others. So he says, take dictation. 
And then he, first of all, gives a clear revelation. Now, one thing about God is he doesn't mumble. Uh, I saw some people at the funeral yesterday that we attended for Brother Jack Bateman, and I had trouble recognizing one or two people because I'm still, it's been years since I've seen some of these folks, and they wear a mask. Uh, Judy and I have a favorite Brazilian restaurant we would love to go to, and we, we went the other night with my oldest daughter and her husband, and we went in the restaurant, and the manager there calls out. He says, Robert, waves at me. His name's David, and I said, hi, David. And I, I still marvel at the fact that with most of my face covered up, he knows who I am. I guess he has learned the particular pattern of my bald head, and he knows who, who that, uh, he sees that bright reflection and says, oh, there's Robert. He's back. And, uh, but it's hard. And not only that, when people talk to you, I have trouble understanding people with their mask on. Uh, unless they're very clear speakers and speak very loudly, I did not realize how much of my ability to interpret speech comes from being able to see your lips. That's important to me. Uh, and you don't realize how. And he says, you need to write plainly on the tablets. Use your best handwriting. This message needs to go out. Make sure it's on this baked clay. Uh, I'm going to give a clear revelation. I'm also going to give a certain revelation. Look what it says. For there is yet a vision for the appointed time. It will give witness to the end. I'm going to go through each of these phrases in a second. It will not lie. If it tarries, wait for it, for it will surely come and not delay. So prophecies demand patience. When God gives a prophecy, he doesn't fulfill it within the next 30 seconds or within the next five minutes. It usually takes a while. In fact, it is when it says it will give witness to the end. In Hebrew, it literally says it pants to the end. It's, it's the idea of a runner. He's getting close to the finish line, but his strength is running out, and he's panting, he's breathing heavily, but he knows he's close, and so he's breathing extra hard. He's going to give it his all to get that last bit of distance. Uh, the prophecy points toward a future goal like that finish line does. And God, in just a moment, is going to tell Habakkuk, by the way, I'm judging the Babylonians too. Don't worry about their wickedness. That's my job, not your job. But that portion of the prophecy about the Babylonians, it, it didn't get fulfilled for quite a while. Because remember, this happens around 607 B.C. It's 586 B.C. when Babylon carries Judah into captivity. That went on for a very long time. It's a long time before... Darius shows up and goes under the walls around Babylon and takes the kingdom away, not from Nebuchadnezzar, but from his grandson, uh, Belshazzar. And uh, while they're having a party, and, and you know, there's the handwriting on the wall, you remember the hand that appears, and Mene, Mene, Tekel, Eupharsin, that writes up there, and you see that. Uh, but I think also there's still a future fulfillment because in Revelation 17 and 18 it talks about Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, being destroyed during the tribulation. So there's still a sense that there is a Babylon yet to be destroyed. But one thing you can know for sure is that delivery is guaranteed by God. When He makes a promise, it will happen. There are no exceptions. Now, I, if I'm gonna, before I show you the next slide, some of you may want to close your eyes. So let me tell you, I'm going to tell you about a movie that Tom Hanks was in. It was in 2000. So if you haven't seen it yet, it's not my fault. And it was a movie called Castaway. But if you haven't seen it, you don't know, want to know the plot. You don't want to know how it ends. This is the time. Close your eyes. Put your fingers in here. I'll have someone nudge you when it's time for you to come out of your coma. But there was a movie in 2000 made by Tom Hanks called Castaway. And in Castaway, he plays a FedEx executive who is sent to different FedEx locations around the world to work out problems and efficiency. How can they be more efficient? How can they move more packages faster with less people? And that's his, his thing. And he's on a plane, and the plane crashes. He's the only survivor of this plane wreck. Uh, there are some packages that are left floating in the ocean and he manages to gather them together and he goes to an island and he's stranded on the island for four years. Now, after a while, he, he first doesn't want to open any of the packages because he knows they need to be delivered to customers. But after a while, you need stuff to survive on. And start, so he starts opening a few of these FedEx packages and in one of them was a volleyball. And the volleyball's name, he, it, was, it was a volleyball from Wilson Sports. 
And at one point in the movie, he cuts his hand, and there's a lot of blood on it, and he happens to touch the volleyball, and it leaves this big red imprint of his bloody hand on the volleyball, and he adds some eyes and a nose and a mouth to it, because when you're on an island for four years and you don't have anybody to talk to, it helps if your volleyball's got a face. And so he talks to the volleyball. He calls it Wilson. They have all these conversations. And the most amazing thing about the movie, he's one of only two actors I've seen that can go on that long being the only actor on screen. In my mind, the greatest job of acting ever was Dean Jones when he made the movie St. John in Exile. And, of course, he made a lot of Bible movies, if you don't know that about Dean Jones. But Dean Jones was on, on stage for three hours with nobody else. I mean, at least this movie starts and ends with other people, but Tom Hanks is all there is in the middle. It was an amazing acting job. So he stays there for four years. He opens other packages to find stuff he needs, but he's determined that he's going to leave at least one package unopened because he wants to make sure that he can at least have done the job to get one package to its destination in spite of this plane crash. So after four years, he's finally rescued. And he takes this one package, and he takes it to its destination, and it's opened, and it was a satellite phone, which had he known that and had used it, he could have been off that island much sooner. It's a very ironic movie in that sense. So... That package was delayed, but it was still delivered. Sometimes we feel like God's word is delayed, but it will always be delivered. God doesn't bring about things often in our time frame, but he does make them come to pass. And then God gives a condemning revelation. He says, look, verse 4, look, his spirit within him, is talking about the Babylonians, is puffed up. It's not upright, but the righteous shall live by his faithfulness, or King James, the just shall live by faith. How much less the defiant, the arrogant, treacherous man, he who broadens his throat like Sheol, that's the place of the dead. One of the two compartments, by the way, of Sheol was mentioned by Brother Steve in his lesson this morning. Paradise was one half of Sheol, Hades was the other half. Paradise is now emptied because the righteous go immediately to be in the presence of God. Hades still has people in it, which is why in Revelation it says, And death and Hades and the sea gave up the dead which in them. These are cast in the lake of fire, and this is the second death. But he says he broadens his throat like Sheol, who, who like death is not satisfied, who gathers for himself all the nations and harvested for himself all the peoples, who will not succeed. Judgment's coming. The Chaldeans or Babylonians are arrogant and greedy, and they will not succeed. But meanwhile, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. The King James Version says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. By the way, that is the verse that Martin Luther was reading one day as he's translating scripture and he translates Habakkuk 2.4 and he says the just shall live by faith and, and it turns out that verse had a corollary in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 and that was the verse that caused Martin Luther to quit trusting in the indulgences of the church and quit trusting in the sacraments of the church and realize that he needed a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. By the way, that's quoted three times in the New Testament. Uh, Romans 1.17, For the righteousness of God is revealed in it from faith to faith, just as is written, but the one who is righteous by faith will live. Galatians, Paul said, Now it's clear that no one's justified in the sight of God by the law, because the one who is righteous will live by faith. The writer of Hebrews, who I tend to think was Apollos, is my personal opinion, I definitely in my opinion, it was not Paul because he says the gospel was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. I saw it's a second generation Christian in my opinion. But he says, but my righteous one will live by faith and if he shrinks back, my soul is not well pleased with him. So we, we see here that there is a, a beautiful tool here, a beautiful passage that we hear over and over again, the just shall live by faith. It's kind of like putting a diamond on a pile of soot. Uh, you know, the soot's all black, and that's kind of the evil of the Chaldeans and the wickedness of the Chaldeans. But the diamond is God's people trust in God, and he gives them a life of security and protection and fullness by faith. And that faith is steadfastness or faithfulness. Now the question is, should we translate this faith or faithfulness? It kind of bugs you that you see one translation says faithfulness, the other says faith. But the two actually have a relationship because one who trusts or has faith in the Lord relies on God and therefore is faithful to God. Um, Mark chapter 11 verse 22, uh, Hudson Taylor 
was trying to translate the Bible into Chinese, and he's in the New Testament, and he gets to this passage of Scripture, which in most of our English Bibles just says, have faith in God. But uh, it's just three words in Greek, ekete piston theu, and actually a slightly more correct translation, because theu is what you call a genitive word, is hold fast to the faithfulness of God. Frankly, I like that version better, because there are days that my faith isn't that hot. My faith isn't that great, but you know what? God's faithfulness never changes. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Why? Because great is the faithfulness of God. So a righteous Israelite who remained loyal to God's moral precepts and was humbled before the Lord enjoyed God's abundant life. Now, by the way, here's an interesting passage buried in the midst of this. It comes up right in the context, and we need to cover it because it's here. And it's something that's probably not very well liked by a lot of Christian groups. But he establishes a relationship of wine to wickedness. Listen to what he says. Yea, also, because he, talking again about the Chaldeans and Babylonians, transgresses by wine. By the way, let's think about this for a minute. What exactly was happening at the moment that God's hand appeared and wrote, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Yepharsin, on the wall of Belshazzar's palace. What, was it, what were they doing? They were using the vessels from the temple and they're having a drinking party. They're drunk. So look, let's go on what he says. He's a proud man, neither keepeth at home, who enlargeth his desire as hell and is his death. He cannot be satisfied, but gathereth unto him all nations. He heapeth unto him all people. And, and he says, first of all, you are betrayed by your wine. That wine is going to betray you. It's going to deceive you. In verse 15, later in this chapter, he says, Woe unto him that gives his neighbor drink, that puts the bottle to him and makes him drunk also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. He says, you get people drunk, and then you take advantage of them sexually. Hey, that's a plot of a whole lot of movies today. Uh, But that's what he says is going to happen. And the Babylonians evidently were addicted to wine. And the treachery of wine is described well in Proverbs 23, where it says, Don't look upon the wine when it's red. When it gives its color in the cup, when it moves itself aright, at last it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. So in other words, watch this, because wine leads to wickedness, it leads to stupid in a lot of ways. And then he can, God concludes, hey, judgment's coming. Don't worry about the wicked Chaldeans. Don't worry about the Babylonians. That's not your job. Your job is to repent, Judah. It's my job to take care of your enemies. After you've been chastised. But leave your enemies up to me. He, he, he said the typical Babylonian is arrogant. It's the word Yahir means haughty. It's only here and in one other verse in the Old Testament. They're haughty and never at rest. They're always looking at new expressions for their arrogant contempt for others. And these proud, restless people were as greedy as the grave. So just like nobody ever stops dying, the Babylonians never stopped conquering people. And they sought to take captive every people they could find. And so like some hideous monster, the grave devours the nations and Babylon devours all peoples. But they would not go unpunished. Judgment is coming. So where are we going to be next week? What are we doing next week? God is now going to be given a series of woes. That's W-O-E-S. Okay, I'm not woe like W-H-O-A, woe horsey, but woes. A series of sorrows that come upon the ungodly. Now, so next week is going to sound like kind of a negative sermon, but then we get to chapter 3, and the praise is on. And we find out that we praise a righteous God, even for decisions that we don't understand. I'm really looking forward. There's probably maybe three more messages in Habakkuk. But God is very thorough. You'll find out just how thorough he will be in his judgment of the Babylonians and Chaldeans. So don't miss that. So what did we learn this week? Well, one thing we learned is that we need to follow the example of Habakkuk, who before he asked God that next question, how can you use such wicked people to accomplish your will? He first of all stops and praises the eternal God, the holy God, the God who is his rock, the God who is the only source of stability, the God who never falters on his promises, the God who always keeps his covenant to Israel, to Judah, and the new covenant he always keeps to Christians. That's why I'm not worried about losing my salvation, quite frankly, because Jesus made a covenant with me and he never goes back on his word. I have been sealed by the Spirit of God. And so no matter what 
looks like it's going on around us. And yes, I'm not crazy about H.R. 127. I hope it doesn't pass. I'm not crazy about the financial corruption because I think wicked people are getting away literally with murder in some cases. I'm not crazy about an election process that's so corrupt that you wonder if you want to vote in the next one. I'm not crazy about any of this, but you know what I do have, what I can be excited about, is that my God has not changed in His character. He has not left His throne. He is not out of control. He's still sovereign. That's an awesome God. He's always worthy of praise. He's always worthy of adoration. And His promises never fail. And regardless of how we feel on our respective views on politics, we should know that God's always worthy of praise, isn't He? In an unstable and corrupt world, we have one certain surety on which we can base our lives, and it's this. The ever-faithful God and His inerrant, infallible Word. So as Dennis comes to lead us in a song, I'll just ask this final question. And that is, what should we now do? Based on what we've seen in Habakkuk today, I think we need to learn to worship the Lord and the beauty of His holiness. When we sing songs, I hope you will adapt the attitude that I have that the songs are not a, a preliminary thing to get out of the way so that the preacher can stand up and talk to you for 45 minutes. They are worship. And I especially love these songs that we sing directly to the Lord. I think that's that or the songs that quote scripture back to God are some of the highest forms of worship we have. I love those songs. Um, Take my life and let it be, I think is the one we're singing in just a moment. And that is a hymn. That's a song we sing back to the Lord. I think we need to acknowledge to God the wonder of His character and our marveling at His ways. I don't know how long it's been since you just told God, God, I am so impressed by you. You are so awesome. You are so great. When's the last time you got on your knees and worshiped God and just told Him how great He is? God likes to hear that. Uh, frankly, I've been married 40 years and... Every once in a while, Judy will think of something nice to say about me. Uh, and I love it when she does that. She told me just the other day how much better looking I'd gotten since the coronavirus came and I'm wearing a mask all the time. And that just raises my spirits to know she thinks I'm better looking. Uh, you know, I, I just think that's wonderful. Uh, but I like hearing stuff. I like hearing admiration. Well, guess what God does too? Um, we need to determine to praise God no matter what happens in the United States, what happens to our political system, whether or not the dollar crashes and we have to go back to a gold standard or whether or not there's going to be a new currency and there's a huge wealth transfer and the rich get much, much richer and we all get much, much poorer. It doesn't matter because my riches aren't here. My riches are in heaven. From whence also I, I look for the Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he shall appear, he shall change me to be fashioned like unto his glory, even by the glorious working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. That's what I look forward to. Determine that more, and this one's tough. This one's just for me. You don't even have to pay attention to it. I'll just read it for my own benefit. I need to determine that more of my speech is used to praise God than is used to criticize my fellow man. I think that would be a good goal for all of us. I think that we need to be heard praising the Lord in this time. And I think that will draw people to us. You know, last week I, after all of you had left, uh, Judy and I had the privilege of sitting in here with our Tamil congregation. Uh, Tamil's another Indian dialect. And we had about 30, 35 people here. And I'm going to put some of their pictures in the bulletin next week. We had... Four or five young people up here leading singing together and beautiful songs, songs that we could sing here quite easily. And it was beautiful and wonderful. We had three people baptized. And uh, I sometimes, I, I remember when I see these guys back here and remember the Telugu group, sometimes you get a little frustrated when you don't see this particular congregation as big. And we've got several people at home for sickness. I'll talk about that in a minute. But... There's a lot going on under the, the roof of this building that most of you don't know about. And I, I look at all the ministries here, and I'm excited at what's God doing. It's worth praising Him around people. Because even if we feel small, God's not small. And, uh, and our other congregations are being blessed, and I think we're here for them, quite frankly. Uh, I think in many ways we're here that they can continue their ministry. So I think we need to just all gear up our speech to praising God no matter what. So I want to invite you as, as Dennis comes and leads us in song.
If you just want to come up here and for a moment as an act of worship, bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and say, you are such a great God. Would you take that opportunity to do that as we sing? Everybody stand, please.